Now, Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Father, we give thanks to you for your word. May your sweet spirit bless it as it has been read, and may you bless it as it is being proclaimed. To you be glory in your name. Amen. Thank you, you could be seated. Now, leave your Bibles out because we're gonna get back to, uh, to this story and kind of unpack it in some more detail. But aren't you thankful for, for Thomas? I mean, we won't have a show of hands, but how many of you can kind of identify with old doubting Thomas? In fact, if we were to uh, ask anyone, even someone not very familiar with the Bible, if you were to ask them, hey, how many of the 12 disciples can you name or the 12 original apostles can you name? Their list would probably look like this, probably first. Most people would answer Simon Peter. After all, he's gonna be the one at the pearly gates, right? I mean, you've heard those jokes and it's not even true, but yet everybody knows Simon Peter, the disciple that had chronic uh, foot and mouth disease. And so most people are gonna say Peter. The next one they're gonna probably say after that is probably the writer of this is, is John or possibly James. For whatever reason, we usually say Peter, James, and John. Those kind of go together. You're gonna say James and John. Uh, after that, maybe Judas, the one who betrays Jesus, Jesus, people are gonna know. But probably after that, they're gonna know Thomas. They're gonna remember doubting Thomas, Thomas the doubter. Thomas the skeptic. And so many of us can identify with that. In fact, even this week, a guy that doesn't attend our church, I don't believe he attends any church, but he asked me, he said, hey, preacher, what are you preaching on this Sunday? And I said, on doubting Thomas. He said, man, I can identify with that guy. That's me. And so as we look at the text, though, the doubting Thomas is, it's, it's true, but Thomas isn't left in the story as a doubter. Thomas is transformed into Thomas the confessor, and we see this in the text. So let's just kind of un unpack the text. What's already occurred prior to what we've read is Jesus has been crucified. Jesus has been laid in a tomb. Jesus has now been resurrected. Jesus has uh, appeared to Mary in the, garden to, uh, in the garden area where the tomb was. Jesus has appeared to uh, Clopas or Cleopas, I'm sorry, Cleopas and another unnamed disciple as they're on their way to Emmaus. So we saw last week, Jesus has appeared to 10 of the 11 remaining disciples in a locked room. 
There's already been a conspiracy has been launched by the Jews and the Romans together. The Roman guard have come back and they're like, hey, we saw angels. We felt an earthquake. We were knocked out when we saw these angels. Um, we passed out for fear. But then when we came to, the tomb is empty and they've been told, hey, don't tell anybody about Jesus being resurrected, but rather launch this story that the disciples have stolen the body. But it's obvious from the disciples that no disciple has stolen the body. And also you have the evidence of now a post-resurrected Christ showing up. No doubt the atmosphere is electric and then there is Thomas. The room is abuzz no matter where the disciples are. It's the talk of the town as the men on the way to Emmaus say, they say to Jesus when they don't know it's Jesus, where have you been? When Jesus asks them, why are you so cast down? Why are you so sad? And they're like, well, what planet are you from? What rock have you been under is basically what they said. Have you not heard about Jesus? And so no, no doubt even more, the whole city is abuzz, but then there's Thomas. Look at what Thomas says. Whenever the disciples say Jesus is resurrected, Thomas replies in verse number 25, so when the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see his, in his hands the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas says, I don't care that 10 have voted yes, Jesus has been resurrected, I still vote no, right? Some of you understand that. Some of you can go with that. I don't care what you say, sorry, I'm not going with the crowd. I need to see it. Thomas's position is this position, seeing is believing. Seeing is believing. I'm not going to believe unless I see, unless I touch it. I'm not going to believe unless I can verify that the same Jesus that they put in the tomb is the same Jesus that has come out of the tomb. Not a twin, not a Jesus swap, not a ghost, not a spirit, not an aberration. No to, no, no to all of those things. I want the real Jesus. And this goes on for eight days. This is just one instance. This is for eight days. The disciples are talking and Jesus has disappeared. He doesn't show up. Where is Jesus? Well, Jesus is here. We don't know. But nevertheless, Jesus doesn't show up to any other disciple for eight days. And so for eight days, this kind of conversation goes on. For eight days, Thomas remains skeptical. And then look in verse number 26. Eight days later, his disciples were, again, were inside again. And this time Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. This is the same thing he did as we looked last week, the same thing he did to the remaining 10. We talked about this last week. You have to go back and listen. I told you exactly how Jesus did this in detail. No, I didn't. Again, the answer is we don't know. How did Jesus just show up when all the rooms are locked? Well, it's because he has a glorified body now. But nevertheless, Jesus does it. Jesus shows up in the midst of them. The same trick, if you will, Jesus pulls again. And he says the same words, peace be with you. The same greeting that he gave last time, shalom. Then he said to Thomas, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it into my side. And then this is what Jesus utters to Thomas. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And that's the whole point of the story. That's the whole point of why is John recording this? John's the only one that records this. And why does John include this? Well, it's because of this. It's to not disbelieve, but to believe. And Thomas answers him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed 
which means happy, filled with joy are those who have not seen. That's what blessed means. Happy, filled with joy are those who have not seen and yet believe. Peter will later on write, Peter will write in his uh, little epistle, 1 Peter 1, 8, he says this, though you have not seen him, you love him. Speaking to the church, the greater uh, audience, he's saying, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's the same picture of blessed are you who, although you do not see, you believe. Now, Most of the time, the story of Doubting Thomas or a sermon preached about Doubting Thomas would end there. It would end in verse number 29. But guess what follows verse number 29? Verse 30, and it all fits together. That even though in your Bible, there's a little bit of a break there and even another title in there, the purpose of this book, I'm not saying that that's wrong, but these two texts go together. They're linked together because the same theme is in both. The theme begins, well, it begins actually in John chapter one, but nevertheless, it begins here in verse number 24 and it carries out all the way through verse number 31. And the theme is this, it is belief. That is what links it together. Verses 30 and 31 is saying to us, you don't have to be like Thomas and doubt. You don't have to be a skeptic like Thomas is a skeptic, but you can come to belief in Jesus. And how do you do that? Well, look at verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. She's saying, I didn't write down, John's saying here, I didn't write down everything that Jesus has done. In fact, he'll go on to say later that all the books in the world couldn't contain everything that Jesus has done saying, I didn't write it all down. There were other signs that are pointing to who Christ is. I didn't write all these, but these are written so that you, now notice it, the the focus shifts from doubting Thomas onto you. Forget doubting Thomas is what John is saying here for a second. And now focus on you. This has been written. I've done this work. I've written this gospel under the inspiration and the filling of the Holy Spirit, but I've written it and for what purpose? So that you, the reader, the hearer, the listener, those of you that find this gospel, that read it so that you may believe, so that you may be unlike Thomas, but that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now I wanna draw out a couple observations from the text. The first one is we can say this that isn't just found in this text, but it's a truism throughout the Bible that there is no salvation possible apart from faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. That's the very crux of Christianity. One time I was uh, witnessing to a, actually a, a family member, a loved one, and she was describing to me her, her, her boyfriend at the time. And she said, he is a Christian. He just uh, struggles with believing that Jesus was real. Like, then he's not a Christian. Like the very crux, crux of Christianity is Jesus. Take Jesus out of Christianity, you got nothing. Like that's it. The crux of it is Jesus and it is our faith in Jesus. There is no salvation possible. Faith is the foundation. The very basis of salvation is belief. It is faith. We've seen that all throughout the gospel of John. We can go back to John chapter three, verse 16, right? 
verse that many of us grew up, maybe one of, for many of us, the first verse we ever heard, maybe the first verse we ever memorized. For God so loved the world that he gave his, his only son, that whoever believes in him, there it is, whoever believes in Jesus should not perish, but will have everlasting life. Verse number 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse number 18, whoever believes in him, see, believe, whoever believes in him, it's necessary, is not condemned. Whoever believes, whoever has faith in Christ, the finished work of Christ is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Look, you, condemnation isn't gonna be determined in heaven. Condemnation is already determined for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That we live in a culture and a society and maybe it's crept into the church that you are gonna get to heaven and in heaven it's gonna be some kind of gigantic scales and God's gonna put in the scales all the good works that you've done versus all the, the bad works you've done and the hope will be that somehow the scale tips in the right way and then God will say, you know what? You did enough to erase all of the bad and you can now enter in, but that's not true at all. We already bear the condemnation. The just judge of the universe has already struck his gavel and he said, all of humanity is condemned. Eternity in hell. All have been separated from me apart from my righteousness. That's true. And so what must we do to undo that? Well, one thing we must do, and that is to believe upon Jesus, to profess Christ. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Belief and unbelief has been a theme throughout the book of John. John has used that language, the word believe, some 84 times throughout his gospel. Jesus, throughout this gospel, has been calling the disciples to believe upon him. The disciples now, it extends beyond the 12 men. He's been telling everyone to believe in him, to believe upon him, to believe his claims. And there are those throughout the gospel of John who believe in him, and there are those who refuse to believe namely the Jewish leaders. They are the contrast. They are the foil throughout God, the gospel of John. Both groups of people hear Jesus's teaching. They hear Jesus's claims. Both groups of people see Jesus do and perform bona fide miracles. But what separates the two is belief and unbelief. The disciples believe and they are saved ultimately. And the Jewish people, the Jewish, Jewish religious leaders, they reject Jesus, they reject his claim, they reject that he is God, and they ultimately will be damned. That belief and unbelief are two separate things. We can illustrate that with this illustration. That belief and unbelief are two separate things, like two separate circles. There are those who believe and there are those who refuse to believe. I don't wanna blur the two. There are those who affirm that Jesus is God, and there, there are those who reject that Jesus is God. There are those who affirm that Jesus is Lordship, and they, affirm, and they submit their lives to him, and there are those who refuse to submit, and they live life on their own. There are those who are born again, born 
from above, born of the Spirit from John chapter 3. And there are those who are still in their flesh and they are unregenerate. There are those who have had their sins forgiven and they have received the righteousness of Christ. There, and then there are those who still bear the guilt of their sin and are trying to establish a righteousness on their own. There are those who are believers and there are those who are unbelievers. And it's just that simple. Although this is true, it is distinctly two groups Let's be honest, in our own lives and the way that we feel, it actually feels like this. That belief and unbelief is very black and white, but belief and unbelief can feel more, more enmeshed, if you will. It can, it can feel more like, like this in our own hearts. And what I mean by that, what I mean by that is this. There is unbelief that can be mistaken for belief. There are unbelievers who may mistakenly think of themselves as believers. And there are believers, there are belief that can be mistaken for unbelief. There are believers who can sometimes doubt their belief. There are doubting believers. There are believers with questions. And then there are pretending and performing righteous but, and moral, but yet unbelievers and they are hypocrites. You understand the two? Do you, have you ever felt like that? Have you ever felt your, somehow that your doubts may bar you from belief? Have you ever sometimes doubted that sometimes your, your actions and you look at your life and go, well, I just must not be a believer. And so what do we do with those two things? What do we do? How do we reconcile that in our, even, in our own, even in our own lives, in our own hearts as we feel? that this is very true, that there is unbelief that can be mistaken for belief. There are people that fool themselves into believing. One of the most wrecking texts of scripture is something that Jesus says. Jesus says there will be many on the day of judgment. There will be many in the final analysis that will stand before God and they will say all of the things that they have believed. They will talk about right doctrine. They will talk about good action. And at the end, Jesus will say to them, Depart from me, for I never knew you. There are unbelievers who can mistake their unbelief for belief. And so let me try to untangle those two with um, four points in a poem. No, just four points. Let me try to untangle the two with these four points. Number one, real faith is not blind faith. Know that that real faith, real belief is not just blind belief. That what John is saying in verses 30 and 31, the purpose of the gospel of John is to give you a detailed and accurate historical account, a theological account, if you will, of the person and of the work of Jesus so that you might come to a place of belief the miracles and the claims and the teachings that are recorded here throughout the gospel of John. We spent two years in the gospel of John. All of those things, they, they are working to reveal that Jesus is who he said that he is. That's what John's whole purpose is. 
Let me tell you, Jesus is who he said he is so that you, the reader, you, the audience, can come to a place of belief in Jesus, that you can put your faith in Christ, you can be saved from your sin, that you can know God, you can put your trust in him, you can believe in him. Just think about how Jesus has even been resurrected from the dead. That Jesus could have, because he's sovereign and Jesus is in complete control, Jesus could have uh, walked out of the tomb and just been resurrected and ascended all in one and never revealed himself to anyone. Jesus has said on a number of occasions throughout the gospel of John, Jesus has prophesied that I will ascend again, that I will be resurrected, I'll be put to death and then I will be resurrected again. He says that the son of man's gonna lay down his life and then three days later, he's gonna have authority to pick up his life again. And so think about this, how very different uh, Easter would look and how very different Christianity might even feel. And yet Jesus could have done it. He could have just showed us an empty tomb. They could have just showed up and said, oh wow, there's an empty tomb. Where's Jesus? No body could be found or none of those things. And then we could have had a Christianity that looked like that. And yet we could... It could have happened that way. He could have done that because Jesus had prophesied it. He had said it, but Jesus in his loving grace isn't the way that he's established it. Jesus has shown up in bodily form so that we could be informed. So we know that in whom we have believed that he is a resurrected Christ. He has victory. We don't have to guess where Jesus went. What did they do with the body? Like we know where it was. We know that they laid him in a tomb and he was really dead as we've talked about over the last couple of weeks. And then he's been resurrected again. Jesus appears to Mary. He appears to the disciples. He will talk in detail as we'll see even in a couple of weeks to Peter. The apostle Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus will appear to more than 500 people than just a handful of people. Jesus will appear to over 500 people. And when Paul writes that in 1 Corinthians, he's not writing that some hundred years later. I mean, Paul will say that, hey, a few of these people have fallen asleep. A few of these people died. But what he's saying here is there's still a majority of the people are still alive. And yet no one shows up to refute what Paul is saying. No one shows up and calls Paul a liar and says, no, we didn't see it. I don't know who those hundred people are. That didn't happen and that didn't exist. Why? Because these hundreds of people saw a resurrected Jesus. Yes, faith is the foundation of our salvation. As Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. So it's not something you can see. It's not something that you can test in a lab. Ultimately, it rests and it hinges upon our faith and our belief. Hebrews eleven six. without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. There is no way to God that bypasses faith, but faith feeds on the truths of God. And faith feeds on the word of God. That's what John is saying here. I'm writing this and I'm, it will be preserved for you, the reader, so that you can believe in Jesus. Paul will write in Romans 10, chapter 10, verse 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That God's word, it feeds our faith and it feeds it in a spiritual way and it feeds us in a, in a very real way. It always amazes me whenever I talk to someone who would claim to be atheist or agnostic or an unbeliever. And then I ask them, well, have you read the Bible? 
And what did you think of that? What do you do with the person and the work of Jesus? What do you do with the four gospels? What do you do with that? And by and large, most have never read the Bible. Most have never studied the Bible. Most have never thought about the person of Jesus, a historical real person, the claims of Jesus, the claims of the church, how the church begins, the explosion. They've never thought of those sorts of things. And so real faith is faith, but real faith is not blind faith. And what feeds our faith? God's word feeds our faith. If you feel, if you're here and you're a believer and you feel that your faith is weak, your fickle faith is weak, how do I, what, do I, what should I do? How do I return? How, how can I grow that? How can I mature that? Get into the word. That's how you grow that. Study God's word and read God's word that in a very real sense, God will grow your faith and mature you as you think about God and as you spend time with God and as you think about the apologetics, as Pastor Brian talked about a few weeks, that's a defense, that's not us apologizing for God, but as you think about real apologetic work, but also it has a spiritual truth to it. God's word is spirit and it's light. And as you spend time with it, it feeds and fuels your faith and your faith grows. That's number one. Number two, we are saved by the object of our faith, not the strength of our faith. I want to especially speak to, to believers who doubt at times, to believers who have questions at times. Know this, that you are saved by the object of your faith, not the strength of your faith. That when we talk about faith, we could talk about faith into two categories. We could talk about your faith and then we can talk about the faith, right? So we can, as Christians, we should maybe try to brand the word the. No, maybe that's just Ohio Buckeyes. Have you heard that? Ohio Buckeyes are trying to brand the word the as part of their name. So the word the would belong to them. That's ludicrous, but we're talking about two separate things here. Your faith versus the faith. Your faith is something that is very subjective and something that is very personal. And some of you are very strong in your faith and some of you are not so strong in your faith. But that's your faith, something that's personal and subjective. We can also speak about faith in another category as the faith. That's something that is objective, something that is established, the truths about God. Jude will say in his little book, he'll say that we are contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What does he mean by the faith? Well, he's talking about the teaching and the doctrine about who, what, how God exists. That the gospel of John and the entirety of the Bible is establishing the faith so that you, it's establishing the faith so that you can put your sometimes weak sometimes fickle, sometimes frail, sometimes questioning, sometimes doubting your weak faith into something that is strong over here. For the doubting believer, there are two things working in you, the frailty of your faith and also the strength of what you believe in. That's number two. You are ultimately saved by the object of your faith that is Jesus and not just in the strength of your faith. Number three, doubt is not the enemy of belief. Unbelief is. And what I mean by unbelief is, it's a refusal to believe. It is not a sign of unbelief to have questions or even to have doubts about God. 
the presence of your question does not mean there is an absence of genuine faith. The question becomes then, what do you do with those questions? What do you do with those doubts? And even what do you do with the answers when God gives you an answer? I think that may determine belief or unbelief. Not the presence of doubts, not the presence of questions, but what you do with them and how they drive you. Jesus tells us in the Bible to have childlike faith, not childish faith, but to have childlike faith. Have any of you spent any time with a toddler? Would any of you like to spend some time with a toddler, say this afternoon? We can arrange that, right? Right, <laughs> loving that. I spent, uh, on Fridays is daddy-daughter day. Luann works, it's the day I try to take off and I spend Fridays with uh, my daughter, Safira, who's four going on five. Last Friday, we were trying to go to Kroger, but all of a sudden, Safira has figured out that there are other languages, which is kind of ironic because she used to speak another language. My daughter, Safira, has been adopted from Haiti, and so when she showed up here, she didn't speak English, she spoke Creole, but all of a sudden in her little brain, she's understood that there are other languages. And so Safira asked me 27 words and asked me what they mean in Spanish. Daddy, what does friend mean in Spanish? Uh, amigo or amiga? Daddy, what's hello mean in Spanish? Hola. And that's about as far as I could go. And then she kept asking questions. And I kept saying, "Tell you're going to have to ask Piper's mom. Amanda teaches Spanish. I'd say, you're going to have to ask Chris, Kristen O'Neill. She'd say, ask Lindsay Hicks. Don't ask me. I don't know. But it still, Dad, what is this? What is this? What is this? What is this? Have you spent time with children? They ask incessant questions. Do they not? And that's sometimes is childlike faith. It is asking perpetual questions. They ask, you answer, they follow up with another question. But listen, most children, and I'll leave that as that, most children don't ask to challenge, but they ask rather to believe. Now, some children will ask from times to challenge, and that's because they're little sinners, right? <laughs> Why? because I just told you, but why did you tell me? Because I just told you, but why, right? That's asking to challenge, but most children don't. They ask in a way to move them to not just information, but to trust. They're not asking to challenge, but they're asking in order better to believe. Think about the difference between a child asking questions and possibly a prosecutor who's cross-examining someone on cross-examining a witness, that both are launching questions, but the child is asking in order to learn, and the prosecutor is asking questions in order to reveal something, in order to reveal a lie, usually. They are challenging, and challenging is not believing, but challenging is undermining. The questions that you ask and the hurdles that you sometimes have in your faith or in the faith, I should say. When you approach those, do you approach those? Do you prayerfully approach those as, as means to learn or do you approach those as means to challenge? Challenging the existence of God, challenging the sovereignty of God, challenging the goodness of God. Or are you asking those real questions in order to, to learn, to learn more about God, to learn why does God do that? Why did God do that? Why does God ask this of us? And I think ultimately it comes down to 
when you get the answer. Because God does answer a lot of our questions. Now, he doesn't answer all of our questions. I mean, that's Christianity. In Christianity, you have great mysteries, right? We're talking about the, 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 the finite trying to understand the infinite. I mean, I say this often. If, if any man has God completely figured out, we're all messed up and he's not God, right? It, I, I can't do a lot of things that I can't do. I, like I said, I can't do basic algebra and basic math. And you want me to stand up here and pretend like I've got the God of the universe completely figured out? No, you can't do that. There are great mysteries here, but those mysteries are girded up by great truths. Great truths as God has revealed himself and he's revealed his nature. He's revealed himself in scripture. He's revealed himself in, in his son. And the question is, are you a doubting believer? Or are you a challenging unbeliever? Well, what do you do when God answers your question? Think about this. There's a man in the Bible called the rich, he's, He's called the rich young ruler. Like that's kind of his name. We don't know his name. I, I'm guessing it was Bob, but nevertheless, he's the rich young ruler. Those things are said. And he comes up to Jesus and he asks Jesus a question. This question's a very important question. Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers him this way. He says, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. Now listen, when Jesus says that, Jesus isn't teaching that the way to heaven is by giving to the poor. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. What Jesus is saying is the way to heaven is by loving God more than you love your things. That's how do you get to heaven? Like heaven isn't filled with just good people. Heaven is filled with people who love God and love God supremely and love God more than themselves. Jesus knows the, his heart and he knows the idolatry that is in his heart. The man asks, Jesus answers, but then the man is unwilling to obey Jesus. So the man walks away sad. The Bible says he walks away sad because he was extremely rich. He left an unbeliever, but his unbelief isn't because his question didn't get answered. His unbelief is because he didn't like the answer. And the truth is that most unbelief it isn't grounded in intellect. Most unbelief is grounded in morality. That often the intellectual obstacle to belief is actually a convenient excuse for rebellion. And the same thing is true for us. When we ask and we search out the scriptures and God gives us the answer, what do we do with that? Number four, Mental assent alone is not belief. A passage of scripture that oftentimes uh, wrecks me is this one found in James, the second chapter, verse 19. James, the brother of Jesus, he writes that you believe that God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. That a demon is an irredeemable, condemned creature the very enemy of God. It is utterly evil through and through. And yet what James says is it believes right things about God. That mentally acknowledging and affirming doctrinal truths is not saving faith. Demons believe and they're convinced of the reality of God and it makes them shudder. Demons believed good doctrine 
The question isn't whether or not you just believe good doctrine. The question is, have you submitted yourself to God? Notice again that doubting Thomas is changed. Doubting Thomas comes to Jesus, and yet when he sees Jesus, he's changed. And what does he change to? He's changed to confessing Thomas. Thomas says to Jesus, or Jesus says to Thomas, I'm sorry, do not disbelieve, but rather believe. And Thomas answers him with this confession, my Lord and my God. That's personal confession, and that is what's necessary for salvation. Paul writes, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Struggling the believer in the room. Again, struggling believer in the room whose heart and mind is still open to God. Listen, let your doubts drive you to Jesus. That's oftentimes our doubts are, are like a sail, right, in our lives, and they can drive us in a certain way. So let your doubts drive you to Jesus. And this is coming from someone who finds seasons of doubt. That for me, uh, faith is kind of like the sun, right? There's days when the sun shines bright on our, my old Kentucky home. There's days where the sun bright, shines bright in my, in my heart, my heart is full of belief and my heart is full of submission and my heart is full of faith and I'm firmly convinced in God and in love with God. And then there's some days like today. Well, not spiritually like today, but like today outside. And the sun is uh, clouded over. It's an overcast day and my, my faith feels frail. My faith feels weak. Listen to me, let your doubts drive you to God. What do you do in those times? Let your doubts grow you in your faith, become, allow you to become mature in your faith as you study and as you read and as you seek God. Remember that in the Hebrews eleven six, 6, you must believe that God is and that he is a rewarder for who? For those who diligently seek him. Seek him as you study. Seek him as you read. Seek him as you pray. Seek him as you listen to worship music. Seek him even whenever your heart doesn't feel like seek him. Seek him. Put your faith in him. And as you do, watch your faith be strengthened and watch your faith be refined and watch on those beautiful sunny days. What if every day was a sunny day? Like I love the sunshine. I love the summer. I say like this about me physically. I I, I thrive, I run on solar power, right? I know some of you love days like today. Pastor Derek, he loves, the, he loves gloomy, cool, wet, damp, blah, loves it. Go, Derek, how can that be? But what if every day was just that sunshiny day? Like you wouldn't know what the sunshine really feels like. And in the same way, sometimes God obscures himself from us so that we can diligently seek him and run after him and press into God. Press into your disciplines even when you don't feel like it. An unbeliever in the room, all you may have is mental assent. All you may have is you may say, hey, I believe in the existence of God. I believe in the existence of Jesus and yet you've never been transformed by them. What's the difference between you and a demon? Well, hopefully if you're a believer, it isn't just that you believe in God. Hopefully the difference is, is that you've been transformed by God. 
that God has transformed you and he's changed you. And how has he changed you? Well, has he changed your heart? Like that's the promise of the new covenant. The new covenant is you get a new heart. You don't just get new faith. You don't get something else concretely to believe upon in Jesus. You don't just get a better apologetic, although Jesus is all of those things. What you get when you place faith in Christ is you get a new heart with a new ability, with new affections and new desires where you desire to love God and desire to serve God, desire to read God's word and desire to pray God, desiring all of those things, desire to gather together with the church. Has Jesus, has a knowledge of Jesus, of who Jesus is, has it transformed you? Has it changed you? Has it filled you? Has he given you that new heart? What's your life look like? What's the direction and the trajectory of your life? So it look like you growing in knowledge of Jesus, growing in love for Jesus, growing in the things of God, or do you still stubbornly hate those things and despise those things and find any excuse not to participate in those things? What about sin? Does your sin wreck you? Does it bother you? to keep you up at late at night when you think of yourself as a sinner. And when you do sin and you think of those things or you just say, hey, no big deal, I'm forgiven. Sweep that under the rug, forget about it, move on. Do you just try to relabel your sin as something else? Oops, I slipped, I looked again, I saw again. All people do it, all men lust, whatever it may be. How do you react to sin? How do you react to Jesus? That's, pretty much the test for our own hearts. And if you're here this morning as an unbeliever and you may say, what must I do to be saved? It's pretty simple. You must have some, you must know some things. Primarily, you must know that Jesus is a savior and you are a sinner. You need to know some basic facts about Jesus and about human sin. You need to know that Jesus was God in human flesh, that we are all sinners who are justly guilty before God and that Jesus alone can bring forgiveness for our sins. You must intellectually affirm that. You must know that. Mental assent alone is not belief, but, it's, but it does require mental assent to be saved. You must come to a place where you mentally ascend to that. You believe, you, you affirm that. But second, not just affirming that, you must believe. You must believe in your heart, as Paul says. You must believe these facts are true. You intellectually affirm them, but then you also believe them in your hearts. And number three is you apply them. You personally apply those facts by abandoning trust in yourself or in your religion or in your good works. And you trust in Jesus and his death and in his resurrection in order to save you from God's judgment. The saving faith is necessary it includes repentance, turning from your sin. It requires commitment and submission to Jesus as Lord, obedience to him, a willingness to follow. And you do that in the privacy of your own heart, but then you also follow it up publicly. You do it in the privacy with a prayer, but then also the Bible teaches us what's necessary is a public confession of that faith. You confess Jesus before men. Jesus says, if you if you confess me before men, I will confess you from the Father. But if you refuse to confess me before men, I will not confess you before the Father. And that's pretty cut and dry. Andy, what does that text of scripture mean? Well, it means exactly what it says. That for some of us, our pride is a huge stumbling block in our faith. And you gotta lay your pride down and come to Jesus and confess Jesus believing in your heart. And then also you need to 
confess that, that a genuine Christian, genuine saving faith will give us the necessary courage to confess him publicly. And primarily the way that you do that is through baptism. You're baptized, and that is your public confession of faith. If you're here this morning, and maybe you've been baptized in your past, but maybe as you think about your own life, you say, I didn't believe in Jesus when I was baptized. I got baptized because my buddies got baptized. I got baptized because I thought it was the right thing to do. I got baptized by some other means, some other methods, or some other reasons, I guess I should say, by some other reasons. And maybe even this morning, you've come to the realization that you got religion, but you didn't get Jesus. And today's the perfect day for you to put faith in Christ and follow him up in baptism. In fact, we already have a baptism to be scheduled on, not next Sunday, but the following Sunday. We have excellent time for us to baptize you as well if you're here this morning needing baptism. Let's pray. Jesus, we're so thankful for your grace. Think of that song, and I quote it so often, oh, for grace to trust you more. And that's where we are. That our trust and our faith isn't even something we muster up in and of ourselves. It's not like trying to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps, but it is something that we give in to. I pray for us this morning, Lord, as you give us a, just a, that you would just give us a new, by your grace, you would give us a new pouring out of of faith and trust. Oh, for grace to trust you more, that we would trust in you, we would trust upon you, and then we would trust you. We would trust you, not in just in salvation, but we would trust you in all of the things that makes our hearts anxious. We would be like the Apostle Paul, I know in whom I have believed and that he is able, he is able to take care of everything that we submit to you. We would believe, even in this time right now, those two truths we believe that you are, and we believe that you are a rewarder. And I pray, Lord, that we would diligently seek you and be reminded of your great grace and goodness to us. Jesus, as we enter into this time of reflection, Lord, for those of us who are allowing the sails of our doubts to blow us in other directions, allowing us to drift into mediocrity, Lord, I pray that we would turn those sails, that we would allow our doubts and our questions to blow us toward you to become more disciplined. And Lord, I pray this morning as well for the unbelievers in the room that you, by the power of your spirit, you would save them. It's in your great name we pray that. Amen.